This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots to talk about today, but we've got uh, Ken in here now, so we want to uh, make use of him because he's a very busy guy at the, this time of the day. Uh, you're following what is going on uh, down at uh, at City Hall. Give a brief synopsis of what is happening today. Well, of course, today uh, the latest big LRT-related meeting to to discuss. Uh, well, but for starters, there. Uh, receiving uh, project manager Paul Johnson's latest update on the project. So right. he's been touching on whole wide range of issues uh, as to where they're at right now in terms of negotiations on properties that they'd need to acquire. Uh, some 43 letters had gone out mm-hmm. uh, to to people they're in negotiations with, I guess, at this point on purchasing properties along the LRT line that would be needed for construction. They're also trying to negotiate the purchase of some land just right around here down off of Longwood where the uh, the maintenance storage right. operation facility would be built to go with the LRT and the, they've they've picked the location here around Longwood in the 403 because right. it's not in a residential area so yeah. they've, they've decided that area would have uh, the least that makes impact. Sense. Uh, there's also some uh, estimated numbers in terms of uh, job creation. I, I guess this maintenance storage facility would yeah. create 100 or more permanent jobs, but also the construction of LRT as well. They're saying about 3,500 jobs right. uh, throughout During the, the construction of process. construction. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those who think that it's easy and simple to turn around at this point and say no to LRT, well, Already 60 to $70 million has been spent or committed on this project, so I may want to toss that into the discussion as well. My, oh my. Uh, getting back to expropriation, did they ID any of the properties that they are looking at expropriating at this point? I have not seen a specific list, yeah. uh, but we know that they're they're along the King Street corridor, right, right on the line, and that's, those would be properties that would be needed for the stations, right, for right. example. Uh, so you, you could probably take a look at the proposed map and, and kind of figure out sight where. line where some of those put one right be. over top of the other. I yeah. guess another interesting point: twenty kilometers worth of utilities would have to be relocated along the LRT corridor. Municipal utilities, under underground utilities, for example, like electricity. Uh, yeah, any any water. sort of any sort of municipal lines related to yeah things like mm-hmm. electricity, water, uh, the such. Now that being said, uh, I had heard that. Uh, the great thing about the one positive of this, not to take sides on, on either of this, mm. but uh, is that a lot of the, it will be an opportunity for a lot of that infrastructure to be replaced and needs to be replaced anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Upgrade. You can upgrade a lot of things uh, along the way, and that would certainly include roads and sewers. You're right. So full house down there. It is. It's an overflow. Uh, Situation down there right now. You got the uh, yes side with their T-shirts and the no side. Are they mixed together or is it like a soccer game? Do they Um, have a fence down the middle of the? uh, (laughs) No fencing. No fencing. But so far, so far, no uh, uh, no altercations that I'm aware of. So. That, that's a good thing. So, uh, how any idea how long this is going to go on for today? Oh, it's 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 hard to is say. As I say, they've they started out by spending a half an hour trying to figure out the order of the agenda for today, for starters. So, because they've got uh, a few dozen people are registered to speak, right. both for and against the project. You've right. also got over a thousand letters on the agenda today from people in the community with their feelings on LRT. And then, as I say, you've got uh, the, the project manager's update, which mm-hmm. is where they're at right now. Right. And Obviously then the council the... will be asking questions of Paul Johnson on that update, right. on all of these matters that we were just discussing. So that's going to take some time. And then everybody has five minutes 
to make their point. So it's going to take so most ter- of the day and into the <laughs> evening, quite likely. <laughs> he says with a very, a very excited look on his face. I've been here before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so obviously they're trying to get all the information portions of the meeting out first, like the updates, all that sort of thing. And yeah, get, they, they ended up voting to do that, that to, to receive the update so that people would know... Uh, What's going on? They would have some answers, perhaps, to some of the questions that they were wanting to bring forward. And, and yeah, so it's it, it will be interesting to see where it goes from here. And, oh, also, the legal opinion has been released officially today, right. indicating that two-thirds of council would need to vote to reconsider uh, the support for the project. So that is not going to happen. It seems like that train has already left the station. Yeah, there, there are enough solid votes. Especially for this now project. when you bring up the 60 to 70 million that's already been spent as well. Uh, yeah. You know, something to think about there. Um, oh, and they've also received, uh, I forgot to mention, the, 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 uh, a real estate expert has presented some numbers as well today in terms of what sort of investment over time will result along the corridor, in his opinion, as a result of the, mm-hmm. uh, the LRT. So they've. Uh, up to $300 million over 25 years in investments was the figure that was uh, presented this morning. Um, Once we get to the point where the public starts participating and gets their five minutes and asks questions, um, are there different starting points? For example, some people are still debating things like the referendum and and whether this is going ahead and what what stage is it at? Is there going to be a lot of going over things that we've already heard before? Or are we at the point where, um, you know, we're looking for information, we're looking for feedback, we're not, we're not going back and deciding whether the $1 billion should be spent somewhere else? Well, um, the good thing about democracy, I guess, is that, uh, I guess, of course it is, <laughs> is that people could spend their five minutes on whatever they want to talk about. Yeah. So, yes, we're going to be rehashing a lot of things that we've heard before, I'm sure. Right. And, in fact, many of these things are trains that have already left the station, so to speak. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, do you anticipate this to be action-packed or mind-numbing? Uh, pretty good political theater, really, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anytime, anytime you open the doors for people to, to make their opinions known, you're, you're always going to get some fascinating perspectives and a lot of uh, diverse opinions. So that, it's always entertaining. Uh, what about council uh, chamber itself? Because sometimes they have a tendency to lean one way or the other, depending on what groups are in there. Is it pretty much an even-steven split between the yes side and the no side? Or does there seem to be... Uh, one side being more represented than the other. It's kind of hard to tell just by by looking at it. But I, I would based on, the, based on the number of speakers and letters, it appears to be mostly on the pro side. Really? Yeah. We'll know later, I guess, when the screaming starts. Uh, at what point uh, do you think that um, do you think this discussion will change and reaffirm where we are by the end of the day, or do you think we will be just as divided? Do you think this will bring? I mean, obviously, there's sides that are that are that are are, are dug in or, and are going to, you know, either way stick to their guns. But do you think at the end of this that um, we'll have some sort of consensus or at least more information on what's going on? Well, oh, I think, think we're we'll definitely as- getting more information as to where the project stands mm-hmm. and the fact that they're moving forward on all of these various things, the expropriations, the, the relocation of the utilities, the right. planning for traffic movements. Uh, what else have they talked about today? There's There's been some 
so much, it's, it's hard to remember it all. But I, I think what I've taken away from it so far is that this project is full steam ahead, and it's mm-hmm. go- the planning is going ahead. Right. Many people are working on this, and that this is already a fair ways down the track. And I think that regardless, I, I don't think you're going to change yeah. anybody's mind. People mm-hmm. are pretty dug in in the two camps. Yeah. Um, but I, I I think what we're hearing is that this thing is, is full steam ahead and the yeah. planning is well underway and continues. And the referendum idea is off the table. It's gone. Uh, yeah, I would say so. Uh, where's the mayor? In I'm all not even this? sure we're going to get the uh, the motion to reaffirm the support because it's kind of unnecessary at that point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where is the mayor in this? Donna Skelly chairing. How come? Do, should we not? Well, be that's the mayor? just a normal process down mm-hmm. at City Hall. The mayor's there. Yeah. Um, but they take turns. Right. Chairing meetings. Every councillor has a so, monthly. They're on a monthly schedule. They change who so, chairs committee meetings, and right. this is a committee meeting rather right. than a council meeting. Right. So the chair is whoever the. Uh, uh, the deputy mayor is for the month, and that happens to be Donna Skelly. And so far, she's drawn she's the, doing the short very, straw. Uh, no, she's doing a solid job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah she's uh, drawing the lines in the sand, keeping everybody on a short leash, and keeping everything moving. I, I noticed. I would say she's doing great. I noticed that with the clip that you uh, played. She said at the very, very beginning, it's actually almost sounded like the beginning of a debate uh, in a U.S. presidential election campaign, that she was instructing the, the chamber not to overreact and all this sort of thing with it being a heated issue and such. Uh, or, or mom trying to key at everybody out the door in the morning. Uh, that's the other th- <laughs> Yeah. Uh, do you think the mayor minds not being the chair of this meeting today? Uh, no. That's what I'm thinking. Don't you think it, it, it's, it's, it's better that he's not there just simply because... Well, he is there. He, no, but clear. you know, but I mean in that chair. Do you think that that's better because he's not a, a lightning rod at this point? Because, you know, it, a lot of people are upset with him because... Uh, well, I get this, and I asked this to him yesterday on the air. People were waiting for the citizen panel and such, and in mm-hmm. in their chance to to have a say on this. And his basic s- statement on that was that that kind of all went out the window once we were guaranteed one hundred percent full funding. It really didn't become an issue at all. Do you think that's going to come up today? People are going to say, "Hey, where's our opinion on all of oh, this?" Oh, I wouldn't Nobody be surprised. I, I would think with as many people as there are speaking and and want to have their voices heard, that somebody will certainly bring that up. I think we'll hear just about everything, really, by the, by the time the day's over. Uh, when this is done, what happens next? What's next? Is, well, there, is there any more of these? Is that it? it, it game over? We move forward? Well, we How continue we to get these updates periodically yeah. because that's the commitment that's been made on this project. So uh, Paul Johnson will be back in another month or two, and he'll he'll present another update on where Same they're at sort with of the thing? expropriations and, and everything else, and the land purchases and and all matters that, that relate to and this And great project. when you think about it, because if they keep doing this every month or so and allowing people to come out and ask these pertinent questions, it just keeps everybody on the same page as we move forward on this. That's right. And and it's such an important project, certainly, yeah. too. It's going to change the city dramatically. Yeah. And everybody needs to know where it's at from and, week to week. Sure. And changing as it moves forward as well. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, you get back at it there and enjoy. Did you bring your pillow and slippers for tonight? Should have. <laughs> Ken Mann is with us. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate You're it. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. What is happening right now, uh, Hamilton politicians are into a special meeting, uh, and they, of course, uh, hearing a broad update on the LRT project, including, including questions about phasing of construction, economic benefits, uh, property exp- uh, expropriations, that sort of thing. Uh, apparently, the galleries are full. The public galleries are full, uh, well represented by uh, both camps. 
uh, sporting wear for yay and nay to LRT. Uh, 24 members of the public are registered as speakers, while another uh, 1,000 or so have written letters of opinion uh, on the $1 billion provincially funded project. Anticipating a day-long uh, event here, and councillors have approved a non-enforcement of city hall parking uh, throughout the end of the meeting, so uh, people won't have to worry about running up and filling the meter and such. All right, uh, let's continue with this discussion. Joining us now is Brian Wiley, a private citizen who is down there and, of course, uh, airing his view on all of this. Brian is with us now. Hello, Brian. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. I just finished my presentation. How did that go, Brian? Fairly well, fairly well. And I'm a patient advocate for various group homes and various handicapped handicapped people in the city, which I transport Mm -hmm. throughout the city. And tell us a little bit about your presentation and what your concerns are. My major concerns are the distances between the LRT stops, Mm -hmm. that uh, they're asking for approximately 800 meters between stops. Now, even at a best-case scenario, that means walking 400 meters for a handicapped person to either get to a an intersection or a bus stop at minimum. Speedy banks won't even do that in the middle of winter time. How do you expect us handicapped people to do that? Hmm. Uh, what was, uh, how was your message received? Is it just a case of listening to everybody at this point, or are they providing feedback after each presentation? They're not providing feedback. That will come later. Mm-hmm. They're allowing the delegations to um, make their individual um, sessions first, and then there will be question and answers. There was uh, some changes in the uh, in the motions at the very beginning of the meeting to accommodate everybody. Uh, do you feel you got the uh, you were afforded the opportunity that you wanted to express your opinion? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Absolutely, and I think it's very vital that the public be heard and that. Most people have only come across a lot of this information within the last few months that has been released. And that's why there is such an upswell of people who are finally finding out how difficult it could possibly be for, um, in my case, the handicapped people that I deal with on a daily basis. In Toronto, the distance to the stops is approximately 300 meters. Mm-hmm. So at best case, you're only half the way to that, the next stop, where Hamilton is and Are you still there, Brian? Brian, are you still there? Uh, we're, are we, we got Brian? We do or we don't? Are you there? I'm here. Okay, I'm sorry. We just lost you there for a sec. So, yeah. Brian, are you for LRT as a whole, and you have concerns, or are you against this project? I am in favor of a better planned system, whether it be a combination of LRT and BRT and hydrogen buses or what have you. So you're not necessarily against LRT? I believe the planning and implementation of it is flawed. And uh, that being said, do you feel that these are flaws that can be addressed and worked out? They can be. Whether Metrolinks will is a completely different uh, issue, in my opinion. And what is your feeling of the meeting so far, the atmosphere, what's going on down there? What's the buzz like? What's the feeling like down there? It's fairly high energy right now. Um, the speakers did get a late start. 
and so I was number three on a list of of many. So I'm glad that many people, both for and against, are having the opportunity to voice their opinions. So your main concern, and you know, don't let me put words in your mouth here, Brian, but your main concern is the distance between the stops. In my personal opinion, as a patient advocate, absolutely, that is far too too long a distance. Uh, and when you when when we've got a scenario with bus stops, are they much closer than that? Yes, they are. Yeah. They're talking about the B line. However, the number one bus and the number ten bus go all along, and they're cutting out thirty three stops at yeah. last count. Yeah, yeah. And that is a major issue for a lot of people. That means people have to walk five blocks to a major intersection, cross the road, and come back five blocks just across the road, for example, at at, uh, Tuxedo, Weir Avenue. If you want to just cross the road to visit your drugstore, you can't do that Mm -hmm. with LRT. You cannot. You have to walk at five to ten blocks all the way around to get to cross the road. So um, uh, you were third in line uh, for the public speakers, is that correct? I believe I was, yes. Uh, and did you get a chance to hear any of the others at this point, and what were they talking about? Um, there was one who was talking about uh, potential of delays for the referendum that has been called. Right. And uh, he was discussing the potential financial impact of that. Right. Um, and then there was another woman, Cheryl St. James, who is a business owner who has major concerns with the construction and the LRT. And then there was myself. Uh, Do you you get the feeling that people are interested in this project, but they want to make sure their opinions are heard? Or do you get the impression that people don't want this thing? The average Hamiltonian doesn't understand what's happening because the information is so fresh and new just this past summer. Mm-hmm. However, I think that this is a, a wonderful opportunity to come down and take part in the uh, political process, find out uh, what is available to our city and uh, take part in it. If we don't stand up for anything, we will fall for everything. Hmm. Uh, Brian, are you happy with how this is being conducted? Like, I understand the first part of this uh, hour or so was was a lot of rules, regulations, formalities, and exactly how it's all going to shake down so it's fair and 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 stays on track and such. Uh, so, are are you pretty uh, happy with how it is all laid out and how people have an opportunity to speak? I would say I'm not familiar with the council protocol on a daily basis and how they conduct their meetings. Um, but we're just going along with the flow, and um, that's that's all I can offer. I, but I do think it's vitally important that the, the public be involved and that they do have a voice to speak. And if it means having a referendum, so be it. These councillors are voted to enact the will of the people. Uh, so you you are for a referendum on this? I haven't made made that decision, but I feel that from what I understand, it would take two thirds of council agreeing in order for that to happen. That's my understanding. Yes. Yeah. Do you think that would happen? I can't speak for the other councillors, but this is our opportunity to maybe convince some of these councillors that there may be a better alternative than what is being put on the table. 
I think some changes of the plans are very necessary. All right. And, and do you think that your, your message resonated today, Brian? Do you think they were listening to what you had to say? I hope it does, and I hope it does for the viewers who don't under, who never knew that their mother or their father in a walker have to endure such hardships. And uh, so this is a good opportunity for all the information to to come out so the general public can make their own choices. Brian, thanks very much for uh, sharing your story with us, and thanks very much for getting down there and doing your piece. Appreciate it. Welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Hamilton Naturalist Club purchased a six-hectare parcel of land off Waterdown Road uh, because they want to keep it just as that and not, of course, uh, have it fall victim to urban sprawl. To talk more about all of this, Jen Baker is with us, Land Trust Program Coordinator, Hamilton Naturalist Club, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Jen. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. So uh, tell us about the Hamilton Naturalist Club. What, what's its object, uh, What's the uh, object of this club and, and, uh, and, and a little bit in the background on what you've done with this project here? Um, so we're uh, a club that's 97 years old um, and we have over 600 members. And so w- with a lot of members and being around for a long time, that means we've done a lot of different things. Um, so we have pollinator conservation happening in the city. Um, I take kids out in nature who have never been off of a sidewalk before, but we also work to protect our natural land. Um, we feel that if we want to go out and see the birds, then we also need to make sure that the birds have places that they can go to forever um, as these refuges. We were the, the first group in Ontario, potentially Canada, to just buy land just because it needed to be protected. And we did that in 1961. And we are still doing that today with this new property in Aldershot. Um, Just making sure that it's protected so that we have somewhere to go when we need to, like, revitalize ourselves as well as somewhere that wildlife can go. Uh, What other organizations, clubs, other naturalist clubs in other cities, uh, how big is this network? Um, so I'm not too sure what the exact number is, but there are naturalist clubs across Canada. Um, the oldest one in Ontario, I think, is Ottawa or London, and they were founded in the late 1800s. And there's an, over 100 groups, I think, in Ontario, um, and you know we're, we're one of the oldest. And they all do different things depending on what the interests of their members are. So for our members, it's important to um, kind of connect people with nature and to protect natural spaces. Um, for other natural naturalist groups, they might be interested in um, in gardening or um, just making sure there are lots of activities for the public to, to go on. We're a big group, so we're able to offer kind of all of those things. To the community. It's it's amazing how old some of these organizations are, and how even back then they had the vision that you know, as as Canada, Ontario, Southern Ontario was being developed, that a certain part of it needed to be preserved. Exactly, there was still a lot of green in 1961 yeah. when we bought our first property. How do you get to the point where you're purchasing property? It's one it's one thing to be a naturalist club and get out there and enjoy nature and 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 be an advocate for that, but it's pretty serious once you start purchasing land. How does that happen? How does that work? 
it's a lot of time um, and dedication, and it's kind of a, a gutsy move um, for uh, a naturalist group to take on because you're taking on protection and stewardship of that land forever. Yeah. So forever is a long time. Um, and, uh, and naturalist groups, as a rule, are small. Like, I'm the only staff person. It's kind of 1.5 staff people for the club. Right. So buying land, it can be, it can be an easy process or a long and complicated process, depending on the parcel um, and the wishes of the landowner. Um, so th- with this property that we just purchased, we were talking um, with a couple of our partners and the landowner for, for a few years um, to negotiate the price and, you know, just how the acquisition might happen. And in that time, um, our generous financial donors were, were able to, to keep contributing funds, which allowed this to, to happen. Um, so it can be, but the, in terms of the, the purchase, the same as buying a house. It's just how long it takes to, to figure out what the purchase price is going to be and what the details of the acquisition is going to be. So tell so, us specifically about this property and why you went after this property. Um, well, this property is in the Sassafras Woods Environmentally Significant Area, and it is an area that the Naturalist Club has been interested in seeing protected for decades. Why is it so um, significant? There are a lot of birds and trees and just general interest of, of natural history. And what's also interesting, I find, about the property is that it's still a really healthy forest. You know, you think it's in the middle of Burlington, so this Hamilton-Burlington area is really busy, um, and there's a lot of people that are visiting it. There's a lot of broken-up natural areas. But this forest is really healthy. So it's kind of like a, a spotlight for birds as they're traveling over. A lot of our members are interested in watching birds and seeing what birds occupy spaces. And this is a, a key spot for them because it's our, our part of it is little, um, but it's still a big natural area because a lot of the private landowners also see it as important to protect. So was this piece of property um, under threat? Was it, was it, were you worried that it was going to be developed? How did you get to the point where you, you, you realized that you wanted to, to purchase it? Um, well, the best way to make sure the land is protected forever is to own it mm-hmm. um, because policies can change. And we also knew that this landowner was, was ready and at a price that we could afford. So it's kind of like a lot of things fell into place. Um, it was also an area that we knew that we wanted to protect because it is ecologically significant, and you never know what's going to happen um, in terms of, of development. So these areas that we want to make sure are protected, we take whenever the opportunity arises. And was this property uh, in fear of being developed? Was there a developer after it? Um, there wasn't for this specific property, but there is for adjacent properties. So we're hoping that we can talk with neighboring um, landowners and see if we can acquire parts of their properties too. Now that kind of gets us a foothold in the neighborhood. Um, and, uh, and the other properties are owned by developers. 
How did you specifically decide or um, convince the uh, landowner to sell the property to you? Uh, obviously, if, you know, a piece of property is a piece of property, and if people are interested in it, that drives up the value of it. How, how did you how did you come form a relationship with this landowner and and get to this point? Um, well, it was in partnership um, with our conservation partners, and just really time in talking with the landowner. Um, a lot of landowners, you know, like they they want to get the best value that they can, and rightfully so. But a lot of them also still like knowing that it will be protected forever. Um, and so there are some landowners that really just want to work with us because they like that we'll just be leaving the land in a natural state. Uh, so they don't want to see it developed either in the future. Right, mm. right. Uh, can you protect it even if you do own it? I mean, how much more right does that give you? As you said, if, if you know, it's pretty hard to stop progress if there's ambitious people looking to do something. Uh, can you protect it by owning it? Yes, we can, because we won't, we won't permit anything to happen on it. So we're not going to be going and seeing um, how many houses can we put on it or anything like that. The only thing that we can't stop are roads. Right. But there are no roads that, for this particular area that are that are slated um, in you know the indefinite future. So, um, but anything else, we just wouldn't allow it to happen. It also means, as an adjacent landowner, that we can comment on proposals on adjacent properties because mm-hmm. we have a vested interest in the property or in the area, not just a general interest from you know a naturalist club point of view. Uh, are there other owners in this area who are interested in doing this and uh, and that you are interested in, in acquiring their land? There are. So we're in discussions with a few landowners right now um, in, in that area, um, as well as in a couple of other areas. Like we're, we're in the middle of, of buying a little 10-acre property in the Beverly Swamp that's mm. adjacent to a property that we already own. Um, and uh, so there's a couple, like this isn't the only area of Hamilton, Burlington that we're interested in, um, but there are a few landowners that we're talking to. We just need the time to be right and for them to be comfortable. And how many properties does the Hamilton Naturalist Club own? Um, we own seven properties, and then um, we, we steward another property on, uh, on the East Mountain. And so how, how is that managed? How do you do that over time with an organization as, as opposed to uh, a person actually owning these? Because these are all private lands, right? Yes, they are. Um, so that's one of the things that we think about um, when we're looking at buying or accepting a donation of a property is can we actually take care of it mm-hmm. over forever? Um, do we have the, the volunteers interested in whatever might need to be done immediately on the property? Um, and um, what are the management needs for the property over the long term? We try to go for properties that don't have major management concerns because it is tough as a volunteer organization. Um, but we do have, we've done some pretty major projects on properties. Um, you know, we've done a prescribed burn on a property. So we, we take our stewardship responsibility seriously, and we do whatever we can um, to, to make sure the ecological health of the property is maintained. Where does the money come from? 
Um, that's a good question. There are a lot of different pots of money, I guess. Um, that there are a lot of people that like the work that we do. So there are generous donors that, that give funding as well as foundations um, that, that help to contribute to our properties. Um, and really, it's I mean, there's always a need for more, but that's basically where it comes from is just a lot of different donors and a lot of different foundations, depending on what the project is. Can this continue to grow? Can you continue to move forward like this? Or is there a point where you say, you know what, this is all we can handle, this is all we can manage right now? Um, we can continue to grow. We just do it slowly. Um, but the board is also very honest in saying if we, th- if we got a property that we thought we couldn't manage right now, we would, we would um, defer it. Or we would try to come up, is there an agreement that we can come up with with our, with our partners? Um, but I think we do keep growing and we do keep acquiring new properties and undertaking new projects. We just do it at a, at a level that we can actually manage and sustain. Uh, any of us that have been in this area for any length of time know the natural beauty of this area with the escarpment and just the, the natural geography and such. Uh, and, and more and more people are becoming aware of that. Uh, I'll point to the scenario that we're having with the waterfalls where, you know, at one point we couldn't promote enough that we were a city of waterfalls. And then all of a sudden it's, whoa, slow down. We've got too many people here. How do you manage that part of it? Um, so the, the way that the club does it is try to stay under the radar um, and uh, um, so that people go to the other properties that have a bit more infrastructure to, to manage the, the visitation. But it is a concern uh, with areas being loved, loved to death. Um, and part of it with, with us is trying to, to not advertise. Um, you know, if people want to come, that's, that's great, but maybe connect with us first. Um, and then if we, and then just make sure if properties are getting really visited a lot, that we're out there able to talk to people about, you know, like passive recreation and hiking and taking care of the land and stuff like that. But it is a concern in this area. But I think it also points to the need to protect more natural areas. You know, as more and more people are coming and seeing that we need to get out in nature and experience that and, and rejuvenate ourselves then we need to protect more spaces so that there are spaces for everybody to go um, and that we can manage it. Uh, that's a very valid point. But, you know, is this a case of wanting exposure but not too much exposure? Uh, Want to keep enough interest to uh, keep them alive but not necessarily to trample them to death? Um, yes. And, like, there are areas that can handle a lot more visitation and other areas that can't. Um, so, for example, the properties in the Beverly Swamp, it helps that they're right in the middle of a swamp, so they're pretty protected because yeah. that area I don't think could handle a lot of visitation. It's really sensitive. A lot. This new property, it can. Um, there's a, a trail, an unopened road allowance adjacent to it. It can handle visitation. It can just, you know, it can handle it. So we do want people to get out there and experience, like, all the wonders that this area has, um, especially if they're new to the area and they haven't experienced. Um, I mean, we have a huge diversity of natural areas, and we're really lucky to have that. Um, But I think if people are just mindful that, you know, respect what the 
the owner of the property, so whether it's an agency or a private landowner like the Hamilton Naturalist Club, um, what they put up on their signage for permitted uses. Like, are you allowed to take a bike through there? Um, do they want horses or do they want you to just walk? If they have trails and they're open to you just walking, then stay on the trails and the property should be able to manage that. Uh, website we can go to to find out more about the Hamilton Naturalist Club. HamiltonNature.org. All right, Jen Baker has been with us, Land Trust Program Coordinator, Hamilton Naturalist Club. The Hamilton Club has purchased six hectare, uh, six hectare parcel of land off Waterdown Road to uh, save from development. Jen, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're always concerned. Remember years ago when the interest rates started going uh, through the basement that we were all concerned when they would rise? Um, and, and then I think it took quite a while before we would even call this the new norm. And I guess we are doing that now. Uh, now it's worrisome on, on how much debt we're all accumulating now that interest rates are so low. Uh, that being said, with the government, different scenario, uh, they're trying to stimulate the economy through spending. And I guess if you're going to borrow money, there's no better time to do it than when interest rates are low. In an interview on Sunday, Stephen Polos, the Ma uh, Bank of Canada manager, President King, the king of the Bank of Canada argued that Canada is in, uh, or said that Canada is in very good f uh, f uh, fiscal situation, and that we shouldn't worry too much about deficits. That the country is in a good spot for this. To talk more about all of this, Michael Veal is with us, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University, and is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Just fine. How are you, Scott? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. You know, how does the public, how should the public react to this? Because on one hand, we're saying, you know, mind you, we're talking about personal debt versus the deficit here. But, you know, we're on one hand, we're saying, oh, man, we're getting mountains of debt now. We've got to be watchful, mindful of this, that we don't get out of hand. Yet, on the other hand, we have the Bank of Canada president saying, you know what, this is a good time to be doing this. Well, just like a person, there's two different ways to think about debt. You can be in a situation where you can handle the debt in the sense that uh, you can afford to take it on and, and repay it, but it doesn't necessarily mean you want to do it. And so I don't think the governor of the Bank of Canada is saying, yes, let's take on more debt, just take on more debt. But he's just saying from a financial perspective, it would not be a worry in terms of repayment or in the uh, stability of financial markets. So uh, by saying this, is he basically giving the thumbs up to uh, the prime minister that, you know, if you're going to stimulate the economy, now's a good time to do it? Uh, I don't know whether he's doing that or not. That's not the way I read it. I read it, as I said, more uh, uh, a point that says that we do not have to worry at the federal level in Canada about um, whether excess debt or extra debt will cause problems with the stability of financial markets. Can we spend our way out of what have now become normal soft times, I guess? Well, I think that when we think about the money the federal government's borrowing, I personally don't put as much weight on the stimulative effect as, being, as I do on the fact that perhaps they are spending the money on, on useful things and on infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And whether you like it or not, I think that's the main court in which to make the decision. Uh, in terms of the actual stimulative effect on the economy, the trouble is, of course, at the same time that they've been doing this, the economy's been slowing down. Uh, it's been slowing down pretty much worldwide. 
So it's really hard to disentangle the effects of, you know, would it have been even worse if the federal government had not been running this deficit? And I think the answer is yes, it would have been a little worse. Uh, but again, uh, I think that decision as to whether to take debt or not on largely is a good debt versus bad debt. Thing. Right. If, if the money is being spent for good things, then we shouldn't be too worried about it. But there's never a case to spend money badly uh, just because we think it has some sort of stimulative effect on the economy. So in other words, when we're looking at things uh, like increasing spending on infrastructure, we should look at it in the sense that, well, we need spending on infrastructure. This stuff needs to be updated. We should do that as opposed to doing it because we think it will stimulate the economy. Yeah, that's my view. I think you can... You can uh, Allow some stimulation. I'm just saying the more important place to put the weight, uh, the bigger weight is make sure we spend the money wisely. I do think it's clear that the economy could use infrastructure spending. It is a good time, as you've pointed out, with low interest rates to do that. And maybe it helps a little that uh, there are some unemployed people that can be put to work on these projects. Uh, but the major thing is to make sure we spend the money wisely. Uh, after recession and when the interest rates started to fall down through the basement, uh, many were trying to predict when this would, uh, and just assumed there would be a reversal. Uh, how is it that that didn't happen? And is this the new norm? Well, I'm, I'm one of those people who was puzzled, so I don't know that you should be asking me now. I always have thought that interest rates seemed low to me relative to the conditions of the economy, and it still seems so to me. Uh, these are very low interest rates. And uh, uh, maybe we'll get along talking a little later about the province of Ontario. But right now, why anybody would lend money to the province of Ontario for a period of 20 years at something like 2.5% is, is really just beyond me. I, I don't understand that. But in terms of you know, where we're going, I can never predict financial markets. But I think what's happened is that the economy has not achieved its capacity for a long enough period that we've just ground inflation down pretty low. And there's a lot of people who were burned in earlier financial crises that aren't coming back uh, into the part of the market where you can make potentially capital gains like in equity, so that they're just lending their money on the market. And basically with supply and demand, if there's a lot of people lending relative to the people who are borrowing, you don't get a situation of high interest rates. You'd rather get low interest rates. You uh, talk specifically about Ontario. What did you mean? Well, the reason I wanted to inject Ontario in there is that when uh, Mr. Polos is talking about uh, the federal government of Canada, I think it's fair to say that the federal government of Canada is in pretty good fiscal shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the province of Ontario is not. Uh, it's not the only province in poor fiscal shape. It's probably not the worst. Uh, but there's a number of provinces that are in poor fiscal shape. And, uh, but they're, one of the reasons they're sort of getting away with it, or we're getting away with it, I guess I should say, is that interest rates are so low. And, uh, and I think that's something that we hope holds on a little bit longer because, you know, uh, if interest rates go the wrong way, it won't hurt the federal government very much, but it'll hurt a lot of provinces. Uh, why does the, the feds seem to have a handle on it, but the province doesn't? Oh, I think the province just has a much harder financial problem. I yeah. mean, I know people talk about politics either way, but the province, problem is, is that provinces have financial uh, obligations for health care. Mm-hmm. And health care is where uh, the budget just goes up and up and up. And, you know, every time a new discovery is made, it's great news for us in the sense that our health can be improved, we can have better active lives longer, uh, but it costs the government money. And uh, the province has never had the kind of revenue source that's been able to match that kind of increase in health care spending. And the provinces that 
are able to do that have been extraordinarily prosperous. Unfortunately, Ontario was probably the worst hit by the financial crisis in 2008. And so... It has kind of a double whammy. It's got a, a lot of people uh, with increasing aging and increasing health care costs, but at the same time, it's got this, this problem that it's not getting the revenue uh, to match that increase. And, of course, other things that the provinces do, um, education, things on the justice side as well, all tend to become more expensive over time and are all part of the problem in terms of the finances of the province. Uh, Polos is talking about an interest rate drop. Do you see that happening? Well, he talked about that, didn't he? In fact, he almost said, you know, I really wanted a lower interest rate, yeah. but it was just just decided not to, kind of by the nick of, you know, very close decision. Uh, I, I think that the markets will have taken that into account. I think um, in terms of the interest rates we're facing, uh, I don't think that any longer has information content. Uh, but I do believe that probably it's more likely next time the Bank of Canada lowers interest rates than raises them. Really? My, my best guess is they'll probably keep them the same, but I think they're always going to be just on this edge, and maybe they'll lower them another quarter point or something. Hmm. What will that do to the housing market? And even though they're putting more restrictions on first-time buyers and such, uh, are, are we worried about that? Well, I think, as I said, in terms of interest rates, I think that's mostly priced in already. Yeah. So I don't think it'll affect much in the retail market. I think these new restrictions uh, will matter somewhat. I'm not an expert on that part of the, the housing market, but my, my guess is they'll matter a little, uh, probably matter less in Hamilton than they will in the, the markets that have the really big prices. Uh, the biggest thing I think that's happened in the, the national housing markets, what's gone on with Vancouver, uh, with the foreign ownership uh, tax effectively, mm. and I think that has dampened the Vancouver market somewhat. And I think one of the things that may be slowing down, maybe just slightly, the Toronto market at the slight at the top end, is that uh, there's some concern that maybe that same sort of thing will happen here. We've been talking about uncertainty for an awful long period of time. Uh, have we been through a period of this in the past where it has been uncertain for such a long period of time? I think, yeah, I think it's always that uncertain. Is it just uh, cyclical? I mean, are we going through anything different here? I, th- I think we always have that sort of... Uh, issue with uncertainty. Uh, there are periods of, of good times where the economy has, has moved pretty well. Uh, I think what's striking this time is that the aftershock from the financial crisis of 2008 has persisted in one way or another, even till today. And that, I think, is at some level, it's comparable to the Depression, which is the, the last time there was that kind of aftershock. Of course, it's not nearly comparable in terms of the impact on the economy. Uh, but Occasionally, there do seem to be these events that have very long shadows, and that seems to be one of them. Was the how long? When did we finally say we were out of the depression? Did how long did it take before we were out of that shadow? I think it was World War II yeah. in Canada. That was uh, that would changed everything, didn't it? That's right. Uh, but of course, it was a much more severe time than anything we're looking at now. I don't think we should uh, compare it in terms of the depth, mm-hmm. but in terms of the length, uh, we don't seem to be able to get out of this, and I think it's. Uh, 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 partly because the the uncertainty from that event has been uh, it's contributed uncertainty even till today. Uh, nobody quite knows uh, what the path out is. Uh, is is the economy fragile? And by that I mean uh, any sort of scenario could jerk rates either way. Or is this something that you anticipate being long and slow to increase? I don't think it's fragile. I just think it's it's weak. 
uh, I think that it would take quite the shock to increase interest rates uh, significantly uh, from where we are now. I think uh, that that is you know, part of the concern, though, is that even with the lowest interest rates that you could pretty much imagine, and given that that's our main tool for uh, government influence in the economy, that tool doesn't have much left to it. Um, as I've mentioned, I don't think that there's a lot to be gained from fiscal policy, maybe a little bit in terms of the government borrowing money to stimulate the economy and spending appropriately. But I don't think that's the biggest thing. But the trouble just seems to be we've gotten into, as you've described it, a new normal um, of pretty low growth. And I think part of the problem is, is that as we become more inter- internationalized, it's very hard for a single government to do that much about it. Uh, even if we think about the Canadian government as having a lot of influence over Canada, a lot of our problems uh, have to do with the world overall being in somewhat of the doldrums. And, you know, we need other governments to do the same sorts of things. And some of those governments just aren't capable of doing it. Uh, we've, we've looked at a number of things recently which shows that the European uh, economic community seems to be pretty much hamstrung in lots of directions. Uh, Britain is, again, you know, still recovering from Brexit issues. And the United States is in the midst of this uh, unusual election, and no no economy seems to be no country seems to be in a position to start uh, doing the sorts of policies that are likely to to get the mm. world out of this recession. Uh, fortunately, the less developed economies are doing so badly, and so even though China has slowed, it's still clipping along at a pretty good rate. Uh, India is doing reasonably well, um, and I don't know Japan. It's always a little. It always seems to be, it's almost there back to, to coming back into position uh, to be a leader in, in growth and never seems to quite get there. But I think there are hopeful signs in Japan as well. Michael Beal has been with us, professor with the Department of Economics, McMaster University. Stephen Polas, Bank of Canada, said Canada in a very good financial situation to be running a deficit. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.